Well, dear listener, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, we've gone high tech. If you're watching on the live stream, we even had an, an intro with a countdown. So welcome aboard if you're watching on the live stream. Welcome aboard if you're just listening to the audio podcast. So this is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. I, of course, am Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Sharkbait Shay. <laughs> <laughs> or Shay the Subversive. Yeah. Yes. Hello. And also Joe the Tech Guy. Evening all. And Paul was a late cancellation. Don't know what's happened to Paul, but Paul, whatever's happening, hope that gets sorted out. So so no contrarian in tonight's episode. So we'll probably rattle through about 50 topics because we won't have Paul pulling us up and challenging our views, which is a shame. So, so we've got a bunch to go through and... Uh, it's a little bit of late notice with Paul, and I could have looked at my list and I thought, oh, that'll be plenty because Paul will, will <laughs> he'll really object <laughs> and he'll go to town because we're going to talk about Dark Emu and the criticism of it and a few other things. So anyway, we'll see how we go. Uh, if you're in the chat room, say hello. And so and we might actually at the end do a bit of a call-in as well because I quite enjoyed having the call-in. And so if you've got some strong opinions about things, let us know in the chat room with some comments. And if you want to talk about something in particular let us know when we might invite you on. So that'll keep you busy in the chat room. Right. Shay, got a vaccination yet? Have you been being full? Are no, you too young? I'm too young. Mm. I've considered going to get AstraZeneca, but seeing as it's three months between each jab, mm. I might just stick with Pfizer. Mm. But I haven't made up my mind yet. Mm. Mm. Depends how much they get out. You could end up being fully vaccinated in Pfizer by the same time as if it had been AstraZeneca. Because yes. the gap between the two shots is closer. Mm. Mm. So it you've could got be faster to apply for my Irish citizenship, get an exemption to travel, go and quarantine in Ireland for right. five days, and get my Pfizer while I'm there. Right, and then come back. I, I didn't could, know I could was... do all of that probably by October. All oh, right, I didn't know that was on the cards. It think... isn't, oh. but I was just thinking, like, as okay. how stupid it's getting. Right, that you know, mm. young people have to yeah start thinking about creative ways to get vaccinated. Mm. So we're a good cross-section. You haven't had a single jab. I've no. had one and Joe's had two. Yep. There we go. Have you had Pfizer? Mm. Okay. So my, my wife got us organised and so I went down to the Royal Brisbane and just stood in line for two hours and got the Pfizer and I'm getting my second dose in two days on Thursday. I'll be done. So. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's that. But it's interesting, the whole vaccination process is just for Scott Morrison exposing him as, and his government, is just the worst bunch of hopeless, hapless organisers. Could yes. not organise the proverbial root in a brothel. That's right. <laughs> finally, it's dawning on people? Yes. I think. Finally. I think. So I've got on the, I don't know, Joe, are you able to share the screen with these charts now? Have you worked that out? No, or, I've not even looked. You haven't even tried. It might turn up on the screen, but in the chat room, Bob says... Are you guys going to discuss the now 335 deaths in Australia after vaccination this year? Bob, no, because that simply means people who died after getting the vaccination, not because of the vaccination. Like, it does happen that people who have a vaccine die afterwards. So that's just one of those bogus statistics that the anti-vaxxers like to trot out. But keep them coming, Bob, if you've got gold like that. So for, for Labor with their campaign... Two things. One is to expose the terrible vaccination. Yes. Progress. Which mostly it just speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yes. Mm. 
I mean, when you can see all sorts of charts where amongst the OECD countries, Australia is dead last. <laughs> Just shouldn't happen, Shay. The, the chart is up. Okay. All right. So it's on the screen. Yep. Dead last. Probably by the end of the year, we'll be somewhere in the middle of the pack. Who knows? Mm. So that's what Labor's got to work on is just emphasise that. But at the end of the day, they've got to emphasise the economy and money and how these guys have just thrown money away, mm. given us uh, massive debt. Like spending money was a good idea, but not on Jerry Harvey. Like it's such yes. an easy argument to make. <sighs> yes. I don't get why, why they're not pressing it harder. I just don't get it. So that's what Labor's got to do, first of all, is argue the economy, second, argue the vaccinations, because people will still vote depending on what they think their hip pocket is going to be best for them, mm. I reckon. Mm. I saw an opinion piece page in the Sydney Morning Herald via Facebook and I know we haven't got to it because we're looking at vaccines but there were a lot of there was a lot of upset about what Simon Birmingham had said about the car park rort so they seemed to be particularly pissed off that he was just so cavalier who, who was upset? about a number of people wrote into the Sydney Morning Herald right. with their opinions about Simon Birmingham's yeah. like cavalier attitude to hey well we got elected so obviously it's fine that we rorted the car parks and like yes. that seemed to that did seem to really cut in. Right. Yeah. But it is interesting, like, is Labor's campaign game is just kind of like watch them fall over rather than go and look here and look here yeah. because they aren't really persuading us that they are an alternative even mm. though yes. it seems like they've got so much good stuff. So. It does. They're still playing small target, it seems, unless yeah. it's just that Albanese's doing lots and he just can't get the traction of the media. But, Maybe. But so just looking at Essential Poll came out and it looked at do you approve or disapprove of the job Scott Morrison is doing as Prime Minister? Now, back in mid-March 2021, that wasn't that long ago, three months ago, he had a high point, well, February, he was 65% approval and now he's dropped to 51 in terms of his job as Prime Minister. And Wow, that's still high, isn't it? Yes, 51 approved, 40% disapproved, 9% don't know. Who do you think would make the better Prime Minister? Still 46% in favour of Scott Morrison, 28% Anthony Albanese. And the movement in that isn't as great. And then in terms of federal government response to COVID-19, how would you rate the federal government's response to the COVID-19 outbreak? And overall good back on the 15th of March, reached a high point of 70%, mm. and it's already down to 44%. Big was, drop. was fucking woeful. Well, <laughs> very poor was an option, and very poor went from the lowest was 4% in January to 12% now. Or very poor, I guess is the same thing, Joe. Yeah. So that's a big drop, and it dropped a lot in the last 30 days. And just on state government, how would you rate your state government's response to COVID-19? The worst performer in terms of the polls is Victoria on 50% and the best is WA on 86%. New South Wales only 30 days ago was 69% and it's dropped to 57 so mm. People are swift to get angry with their state governments, but they're also swift to bounce back. Like at one point, Victoria was 49% and then a month later, it bounced back to 62%. So... People's memories on these things are quite 
short and fickle, their feelings about the government's response to COVID. I think that's one of the dangers for the Labor is people are angry now, but in six months' time, if you know, people forget about that so much and they revert to their hip pocket. So, so Bob in the chat room is causing quite a consternation. <laughs> he's flounced out, apparently. Right. He's got, is that gone, has he? No? Okay. he? He announced his departure. Oh, okay. Bye, Bob. Well, you start with a bad one there, Bob. Like, really? If lead with your best <laughs> would be my advice. And, you know, you could... If, well, anti-vaxxers... I mean, there are some arguments there for young people, whether they should be getting vaccinated. It's an easy decision for me. 20-year-old, not so easy. Lockdowns even, it's an easy decision for Australia. It's more difficult in other countries where they can't get anywhere near elimination. So there's good arguments out there if you're prepared to look for them. Anyway. Well, Dr Norman Swans reckons mm. just say you're opening up the country for people who are vaccinated in January yes. and just watch the vaccination rates go up. Mm. Like there are a lot of people, you know, mm. hollering about, I'm vaccinated and I have to stay at home still, Yes, <laughs> you know. So, yes, incentives might be the one. The other part of it is it's obviously increasingly evident that if people are vaccinated, then the severity of illness is a lot less. That's people right. People are not dying. They're not going into ICU. So, yep. so while the virus still might be around, it's just not as deadly. Yes. So, so there's, there's been some actual false numbers coming out of that mm-hmm. because of the Delta figures in the UK. Um, people are, because, although it's more virulent, people are saying, oh, it's less deadly. And it's actually the vaccine that's stopping it being deadly. It is still very deadly. Yes. And the figures, and I don't know what they are, but the figures that I saw showing the number of people who were hospitalised in the UK for COVID, something like 90% of them hadn't been vaccinated. Yes. So your feelings on herd immunity were, I got the feeling, you wanted quite a high percentage of vaccination in the community because there's people who are immunocompromised who can't take the vaccine who might catch it. Is that correct? Either the vaccine doesn't work and also don't Mm. forget even the best vaccines have a 10% failure rate, Mm. which means that 10% of people who receive the vaccine, it won't protect them. So Really? Yeah. It won't protect them against? COVID. Right. But will it re- reduce the severity of the illness? No, that's... Nothing, no effect at all? No, no effect at all as far right. as I know. Okay. So mm. 90% of people, it has an effect. So what would you say in your mind? Have you got a figure in your mind as to what percentage I, of I, the community should I, be vaccinated? I would need to go back, but mm. I, I think it's more like 70 or 80% is usually the threshold. Mm. I think we're going to open up before that. Probably. Yeah. The UK are definitely threatening that. What sort of people can't take the vaccine um it's not only who can't take the vaccine so they may be immune to uh, sorry allergic to an ingredient but right. also people whose immune systems are suppressed the vaccine just won't work right okay so people taking chemotherapy yeah people who've had transplants yeah yeah i mean i've got two friends right at the moment on chemotherapy well exactly so, yeah yeah so so there are there are a fair number of people who mm. it either won't work or are not able to take for whatever reason mm. yep it's going to be tricky. I think people are going to say, if you've had the chance for a vaccine and if you get the vaccine, you're not going to be killed by it, is what they're going to say. I think, I think, well, I think that and, small and number of people who are on chemotherapy or whatever, I think they're going to get well, and, crunched. And it may be the same as with diphtheria, tetan, tuber- no, diphtheria something, pertussis. 
mm. which you give for babies to protect babies. And what you do is you ring fence vaccinate. So everybody who's likely to come in contact with a baby gets vaccinated. Right. And you don't worry about the whole population. Right. So for people at risk, what you would do is yeah. pick their immediate family members, okay. yep. people who are interacting with them, so doctors yeah. and nurses would be yep. vaccinated. Yeah. Can't you... visit unless you've been vaccinated. Right. Basically. Okay. Hmm. It's going to be interesting to see. Thankfully, Scott Morrison has a plan, four-stage plan. <laughs> I was like, he must have been listening to the podcast when I said, what we need is a national strategy. <laughs> but he's what so I went down. <laughs> he's so much into just announcing something with no detail just to say, oh, we're working hard on this. And he's quite good at, at just saying a lot of words but not saying mm. anything. Yes. He's got that down pat. He does. I think he's just been listening to so many preachers in his life that he's, he's yes. just taken on some of that. That's right. And or making and, assertions with no evidence. Yes. And so, <laughs> you know, he'll say, well, these are the stages, but he won't provide any timelines or any objectives or just say, this is what we're going to go through. Well, thanks a lot. Like, how are you going to do it is the important part. Yes. So, the thing I also object to is, is the use of the military and a lot of mm. military people in uniforms appearing on, on yes. camera. And this is a war that we're in yes. here, everybody. I don't like that. No. It's, most military, a lot of military people are not that great. Like, mm -mm. Even at, even at organising wars, if you want to look at <laughs> Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, like these, lots, okay, they might be good at mobilising a bunch of people to get to a hill and mm. set up a camp, maybe, but just glorifying the abilities of these military people and I just don't like the look of these guys in their uniforms using war terms and when you're in a war type situation all sorts of civil liberties and other things mm. uh, get lost in the wash at this point if Paul would hear he, he would chip in yeah so what why, why are the military why is, appointed yeah because it looks good for Morrison to have well but the they must have some other no the federal government if you think about it they don't run anything. Mm. except the Defence Force. They don't run health. They don't run t schools. They actually don't have a body of public servants who actually deliver services that they can uh, muster and maybe use some of that skill towards a COVID response and rolling out a vaccine. They don't have people delivering services. It's the state governments who have that. The only service delivery group that the federal government has is the military. Okay. That's why. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. After last week and everybody carrying on mm -hmm. <laughs> between ScoMo's announcement and then Dr. Young came out and mm. said what her beat, didn't it seem like if any of those people just went, look, pressure got to us, apologies, we were a bit too overreactionary here, let's just start again. Don't you think that would have been just better wouldn't have australia just responded so much better than all mm. the peter beating peter beady was the master of that oh. like when peter beady made a mistake which was frequently <laughs> so he got plenty of practice out <laughs> but he would just put his hands up and say okay made a mistake sorry mea culpa and sorry yes. and we're going to do better and that would just stop everything because once you've said sorry because a lot of media questioning is is like 
twisting somebody's arm to make them say uncle. It's like yes. twisting them until they eventually say sorry. Well, if you just turn up and say sorry, then they go, well, I don't know what to do next. Okay, well, I guess we move on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I mean, not just say sorry, but actually like promise mm. some damage mm. control as well. Mm. But yeah, I just thought that probably would have been better received. Mm. Okay. Tech guy Joe is working on the YouTube. I don't know what's going on there, Joe. <laughs> I, I turned off the chat when that racist guy was on. Right. And now I can't remember where it was, so oh. I'm just trying to figure it out. Oh, okay. All right. He's working on it. Okay. So, actually, dear listener, this is the six-year anniversary of this podcast. So, I've got some messages to play, and one of them is from Landon Hardbottom. Let me just play this one now. Hopefully, it comes through to you guys. <laughs> Yes, I know, but I don't want to. Oh, all right then. Happy six years of podcasting, Iron Fist and Velvet Glove. And what do I get for my dollar per episode? Bloody book reviews <laughs> and an episode every other week. Well, it's not good enough. Now, I know it's not you chaps. It'll be that Shay girl. You've been led astray by Shay. But I have warned you, and actions have consequences. Vengeance, retribution, come here. Ah, boys, stop <laughs> feeding the sharks. I want them to be good and hungry. Go and find the rather large chaps. Tell them to pack the Jewish space lasers and board the submarine. Fist, glove, twelfth man, Joe the tech guy and Shay. You're about to find out that if you irritate a hard bottom, don't be surprised if you have shit to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lean and Hard Bottom. It's been a long time between drinks. Hello to Cam Riley in the chat room. Cam must have detected that the 12th man's not on because he's tuned in for the first time in ages. Hello, Cam. Haven't seen you for ages. Okay, so <laughs> see, just back to the car parks. We, we sort of flirted with the car park issue. Mm. And so... This is from Crikey. Sure, we're in the media scramble to label everything as a rort, but in the case of the recently uncovered use of the Urban Congestion Fund, what possible evidence can we provide to back that up? I mean, apart from the fact that not a single project that received funding was recommended by the Department of Infrastructure and that there was no evaluation process and the fact that it, was f the fact that it funded projects in marginal seats rather than the seats that actually needed it, and where nothing was built anywhere near where it was needed. I mean, apart from that. <laughs> that. Simon Birmingham was on The Insiders and said something like, well, the people voted for us, so that means it's all okay. Mm -hmm. And I thought years ago Simon Birmingham was maybe one of the better guys. Mm. This is the attitude is, well, they could have voted us out if they didn't like it, so because they didn't. It's, he more or less said it's the Australian public's fault because... yes. You voted us in again. Yeah. Just extraordinary. He's palatable. What's that? He's palatable. Simon Birmingham, yeah. David Sharma. Mm -hmm. They're the ones you send on the ABC because they're palatable conservatives. Mm. They're mm. the ones who any ordinary listener could appreciate what they've got to say. Then but that doesn't make them yeah. less. They still come out with bullshit like exactly. this. Exactly. Yep. Straight-faced mm -hmm. and... I mean, this all came, this has originated with Gladys Berejiklian and Balinara openly just saying, well, if we're in charge and we've got the money, we can put it wherever we like. Yes. We don't have to abide by any rules. Yeah. You call it rorting, we call it 
good government. <laughs> Where were the protests in the streets? It's just that it's expected that we're corrupt, that governments are corrupt. So yep. I'm not sure that we, people can experience outrage. Yes, yeah. From this, Ken and Malik was talking about the Grenfell fire disaster. That was uh, that sort of that cladding on the building that caused a problem. And he said, "We live in a world in which making the wrong comment on social media can lead to people losing their jobs." But where politicians and public officials whose actions affect the lives of millions and whose failure can lead to deaths in the most unimaginable circumstances can simply walk away into their next lucrative assignment. It's a world in which if you have power, you also have the power not to be held accountable for your power. That's true. I think that's what's happening. So Bronwyn in the chat room says the central problem here is that police think it's their money, whereas it's actually our money. Yeah, there's a change of shift of... of, of the attitude of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. According to The Shovel, Scott Morrison has sought to restore calm today, assuring Australians that everyone in a Liberal electorate who wants one will have a car park next to a train station by December this year. With frustration growing about Australia's vaccination rollout on the rise, Mr Morrison confirmed that a growing number of Liberal voters had already received their first car park, with most expected to get their second <laughs> car park by January next year. <laughs> I increasingly find it's the, it's the chaser, it's... Uh, yes. The shovel, Batuta all those advocate. groups, Batuta, who just sum up the craziness of the situation in a nutshell quite often. Yeah, they're the guys doing the really good work. So, And just on the outrage, mm. like when COVID hit and basically the taxpayers been bankrolling flight attendants, our, and thank you very much to the Australian taxpayer yes. who let us keep eating for a year while we mm. weren't flying and working hard. I thought there'd be more outrage about that too. I thought there'd be more outrage that, you know, almost 8,000 jobs have been lost, that 2,500 people were just simply outsourced, like maybe not from the general public but at least from our workforce who just like mm. saw it unfold. Right. And there just isn't. Mm. Just isn't that outrage. People are more afraid of losing their job than mm. speaking out for other people's jobs. Mm-hmm. So that was just an anecdotal observation I wanted to add, like what is it going to take? And then mm. because Jerry Harvey was particularly worse with the money mm. than Alan Joyce was, well, frankly, Alan Joyce pales in comparison, mm. right? I, I don't understand why we're not paying people in the current lockdown in Sydney. The mm. same JobKeeper that we were paying during the major lockdown. But also the Brisbane lockdown, the hairdresser beauty salon who opened up. Right. And was promptly arrested. Yes. But she was saying, you know, I've lost so much money. Right. She was also a complete COVID doesn't exist. Right. Mm. But she'd lost it in a three-day lockdown, is it? Well, right. and the point was that these lockdowns are adding up and, mm. and you need a period of time to get over uh, and she hadn't had enough time to recover from the previous. Mm. Yeah. And the other question is, why have two large football games gone on whilst we're all wearing masks? Look, I can kind of get it in that they're outdoor events. Mm. And it really seems when you see these super spreader events, it's often associated indoors, people sharing food and drinks and stuff seem to be the real super spreader events. So to me, I can understand it, but I just think... Somewhere like New, New South Wales, where we're facing two weeks for certain and maybe even more. Mm. My daughter's involved in HR, so they've, the company she works for, 
she had to ring – well, and there was a, a person with COVID was in the store, and so the store had to be definitely shut for two weeks for all sorts of cleaning and all the rest of it. So she basically said, well, we're having to close. She had to ring up all the employees and say, sorry, no work for you for at least the next two weeks. And a lot of them are casual, and a lot of people just hand to mouth. Yeah. No government support. Why? If it was good enough to do during the major lockdown, obviously people in this situation with casual employment like that who are just on minimum wage mm-hmm. should it's be brutal. stumping it up. Yeah. I okay. think the Treasurer of New South Wales mentioned some sort of emergency package it's on not the a... 17th of July. Yeah, but it shouldn't be the <laughs> so state governments providing it. It's going to be the right. federal governments. They're the guys yes. who print money. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So Mel says the chief health officer said the footy can go ahead because there hasn't been a spread outdoors in Australia and the masks mitigate the risks. So, yeah, it's an argument. Yeah. I think it's right. But I think it's less dangerous than a room full of 30 people sharing a buffet meal. That's dangerous. Or, or 12 footballers mm. sharing a um... party. Cheerleader? Yes. No, sorry. <laughs> I, I, th- I think that was the insinuation. <laughs> right. Right. Or did you not hear about that party? I did hear I about that party. party, yeah. I didn't know there was, yeah. Okay. Follow-up homework. During an episode, Paul and I were talking about Israel and Palestine and the fighting there, and I said, well, the Arab communities were fighting, and Paul didn't think that was the case so much. So did a bit more homework, and... Certainly during the Civil War, the Jewish and Arab communities of Palestine clashed, but then when the, by the time the neighbouring Arab countries invaded, by that stage, the local Arab community on the ground had pretty much been decimated and there was nothing left of them in terms of their ability to fight. So due to previous battles by the middle of May, the Palestinians themselves hardly existed as a military force. So... They certainly fought in the Civil War and then there was nothing left to give by the time they got to the invasion by the neighbouring forces. Also, we talked about forgiveness and Paul was talking about... Christianity. Yeah, and how Christianity had at least given us forgiveness was his proposition. And I poo-pooed the idea and said, forgiveness, that's just a common human trait that would have existed in all cultures and, you know, China or other kind of cultures have some level of forgiveness, I'm sure. They didn't need Christianity to bring that concept to them. And so this is one of the good things about Paul. He forces you to look these things up and to just double-check your facts and then you learn some really interesting things. So a quick Google led me to a guy called Michael E. McCulloch, PhD, Professor of Psychology, University of Miami, where he directs the Laboratory for Social and Clinical Psychology, and he's the author of a book, Beyond Revenge, The Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct. And he says, there's a couple of truths that we need to understand. A century of research has shown that, though we might wish it otherwise, the desire for revenge is normal, in the sense that Every neurologically intact human being on the planet has the biological hardware for revenge. And he says that blood revenge has emerged as an important social phenomena in 95% of societies they examined. He says, my own analysis revealed that the concept of forgiveness, reconciliation, or both have been documented in 93% of those same societies. And it's possible 
that it's 100% because, as others have said, it's actually difficult to find descriptions of forgiveness in hunter-gatherer societies, not because forgiveness is absent, but because it happens so naturally that it often goes unnoticed. So it's widespread. This is uh, forgiveness is widespread across the animal kingdom. And a primatologist, Franz de Waal, and a colleague published results showing friendly behaviours such as kissing, submissive vocal sounds, touching and embracing were quite common after chimpanzees' aggressive conflicts. And in fact, were the chimpanzees' typical responses to aggressive conflict. So unless the chimpanzees were Christian, we can conclude that they actually just sort of got this naturally. So... The researchers observed 350 aggressive encounters and found that only 50 or 40% of those encounters were preceded by some sort of friendly contact. However, 51% of the aggressive encounters were followed by friendly contact. So you've got an aggressive encounter and you're likely to see friendly contact after the aggressive encounter. So it was even more common after conflict than during uh, conflict-free periods. So chimpanzees kiss and make up the same way that people do. And it's not limited to primates. Apparently goats, sheep, dolphins and hyenas all tend to reconcile after conflicts by rubbing horns, flippers and fur are common elements of these species. Conciliatory gestures. So only, well... Of the half dozen or so non-primates that have been studied, only domestic cats have failed to demonstrate a conciliatory tendency. Cats are assholes. <laughs> Isn't that great? I never used to like cats, but as I've got older, I kind of like cats. Mm. I just appreciate the fact that they do just not give a shit. And I kind of like it, that honesty. Yeah. So, so the kitten has probably got a nine-month-old kitten at home. Mm. Uh, and he just walks up and goes, oh, that bit of that, that stuff, remote control. Oh, he'd see my way. Just knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> just doesn't care. Yep. True. So animals reconcile because it repairs important relationships that have been damaged by aggression. By forgiving and repairing relationships, our ancestors were in a better position to glean the benefits of cooperation between group members, which in turn increased their evolutionary fitness. It just makes sense that if you've got groups who experience forgiveness they'll be more cooperative more successful and in a competitive world perform better than other groups it's an evolutionary trait bronwyn's arguing that cats do forgive (laughs) (laughs) oh and every cat owner thinks they've got the smartest cat bronwyn (laughs) my friend andrew used to always go on about his cats and how smart they were my cats. So here's an interesting study about uh, seven pairs of female long-tailed macaques. This was really macaques. just a quick Google. Yeah. But wow. Yeah. Averaging across seven pairs, about 25% of their conflicts got reconciled. In phase two, the seven pairs were trained to cooperate with each other in order to get food. If one partner wanted to eat, she had to wait until the other one wanted to eat. Then they could work together to gain access to the food. The evil, these people, the way they design these experiments. Mm. So they forced the macaques to be cooperative to get food. So no cooperation, no food. In other words, the researchers used experimental methods to turn the macaques' relationships into valuable relationships. So after they'd been trained to work together in order to obtain food, 
the average rate of reconciliation doubled to about 50%. When group living animals are given the choice between A, reconciling with a valuable partner who has harmed them, or B, holding on to their grudges but going hungry, they generally choose the reconciled relationship and the full belly. There you go. All that in They're relation pragmatists. to... Yeah. Indeed. And if this makes Franz, sense. Franz de Waal's done a whole load of stuff about this. Right. He's the guy who has been doing research on primates and morality in primates. Right. Because, yeah, the religious argument is humans wouldn't be moral without religion. Right. And he argues that morality is, is natural. Mm. And we can prove it because primates have it. Mm. Sort of social cooperation. Yes. Which often entails a lot of positive moral attributes. Mm-hmm. Sort of pro-social behaviour is sort of evolutionary. Uh, things like uh, fairness. Mm where monkeys will get upset if you give one of them a grape and another one of them a cucumber or yeah, whatever it is. There's a YouTube video that shows the two monkeys in a cage yeah. and one of them yeah, gets this unfair deal in terms of not the ideal piece of food mm. and it just goes ballistic because it just says that's unfair. Like this monkey genuinely sees the unfairness yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also experiments done with kids, you know, toddlers in terms of their response to things, yeah, a bunch of that stuff. So, so the question would be, I think Paul asked me whether religion has done any good. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, well, it has. It's the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world and the soul of the soulless conditions. But at least it is the opium of the people. And Joe, you wanted to give the full quote? Or... Uh, yeah, I don't have it to hand. Right. But it was really talking about how it was a response to social injustice and suffering that I, people turn to religion. I, yeah, it's basically opium. Mm. Uh, it's an opiate because it hides the misery. Yes. And by taking away the crutch that hides the misery, you see the misery and you demand change. Yes. So I was being a little bit facetious by, <laughs> by suggesting the one positive about Christianity is it's the opium of the people. <laughs> but, but unfortunately, most people don't know the full quote and don't understand the context. All right, good. So, and if Paul was here, I would be saying to him, has the Chinese Communist Party done anything good? And ask him to list something because he wanted me to say something good about Christianity. So I wanted to get something good Aww. about the. There's your homework, Paul, if you're listening, is next time give me uh, something good that the Chinese Communist Party has done. Oh, Briefly, before we get on a dark emu, just quickly, there's a thing with Joe Biden and he's on camera and I don't have the audio, but he's, he's talking about Russia, I think. And he said, how would it be, this is Joe Biden, how would it be if the United States were viewed by the rest of the world as interfering with the elections directly of other countries and everybody knew it? What would it be like if we engaged in activities that he engaged in? It diminishes the standing of a country. Had no self-awareness of what the United States has been doing in dozens of countries for decades. <laughs> I think he was talking about Putin. Yeah. yeah. What would it be like if the rest of the world saw us as interfering with elections in other countries? But has it actually been proven? Absolutely. Yeah. Things like... These are open documents, fully acknowledged, like just throughout Latin America, it's, mm. it's, it's official policy of the US government to interfere in elections. 
That's what they did in Chile. Kissinger was openly saying, we're going to get rid of this guy. Mm. The same in Iran with Mossadegh. It's, it's all documented that Kermit Roosevelt organised a revolution against a democratically elected Mossadegh. We ended up with the Shah of Iran and we ended then up with this Islamic tyranny that we've got now, all because... Mm. There was a slightly left-wing guy elected who looked at the oil revenues and said to British Petroleum, you can't keep 98% of the profits from our oil. We have to cut a better deal. The deal you cut with previous corrupt dictators doesn't work anymore. They got rid of him. Wow. This happens all over the world. It's, it's not yeah, it's, it, it's not speculation. Okay. Tom Stubbins, that great Hitchens quote. So you know, the people that was Karl Marx. Yeah, Tom, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, so, that's so definitely Hitch Karl Marx. Quoted it in full context. Okay, but quoting Karl Marx. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Dark Emu. Let's have a little talk. Dear listener, I'll hold up to the camera. We spoke last time or the time before about a book that had come out called Farmers or Hunter Gatherers. The Dark Emu Debate by Peter Sutton and Karen Walsh. So got the book and I've read it and it's very, very interesting. And a couple of things. I know when we mentioned it previously, Bronwyn, you questioned this guy, Walsh in particular, with his experience mainly being in Cape York perhaps, but it's pretty clear the way the book is written that it's they've covered the whole of Australia in their research and what they're talking about, and they've done it with some obvious expertise. Really looked at the way Pasco has, quote, like Pasco didn't do any original research in the field. He basically just gathered quotes from other people, either early explorers or people like mostly, or other academics, and and taken tidbits of what they've said and this book forensically demonstrates how often he has selectively taken quotes without including the bit afterwards which was invariably but or however that proposition that we've just stated can't possibly be the case because of these other reasons so he's really disingenuous when he quotes something about what somebody said, you need to find the original source and see exactly what it was said in context. You can't trust him on that one. And to me, it's a lot like these people who quote medical reports when they're trying to show that masks don't work for preventing transmission of COVID or, or other sort of crackpot ideas where they refer to reports, but then they take one line out of it, out of context, and the report and totally misrepresent a report. So really, Pasco did that a lot. So they're quite forensic about that. He exaggerates stuff, he omits the counterfacts. But the really interesting thing, I love this book. I really, I recommend it because mm. it actually gave me a good newfound appreciation of Indigenous society and a newfound respect for it in many ways. And the reason was... They spoke very carefully about the light impact that Indigenous people had on the ground. They just kept moving nomadically because they could. They were hunter-gatherers and as food sources ran out, they would move on to the next food source as they naturally would. And the book's interesting because it tells how Pasco paints a picture that, oh, Indigenous people are denigrated because they're mere hunter-gatherers and that they didn't adopt a sedentary 
agricultural lifestyle. And the whole purpose of his book is to say, well, they were really clever. They actually did adopt that lifestyle. And they make the point that's a really Western way of valuing a lifestyle. Mm. The way, and he does in Dark Humor, he really often says they were not mere hunter-gatherers, as if a hunter-gatherer was a bad thing, and that agricultural was good, and that sedentary was good, and that building stone structures as opposed to wooden structures was good. But they built wooden temporary things because they just kept moving. There was no need for a stone building. They They just did what they necessarily had to do. For them... There was no point in conducting an agricultural practice because you could just move on to the next patch and hunt and fish. And why would you stay located in an area and tend a field? It didn't make sense to them. They'd seen that, what Torres Strait Islanders, and they knew about it from Papua New Guinea, and they specifically rejected it. Mm. And so, so for them, it was a deliberate choice not to do that. They were aware of these techniques. They'd seen it passed from the north or they could see it in other cultures in the Torres Strait and they just chose not to do it because they didn't want to and they didn't see they needed to and they're like, why would I want to do that when I can wander around hunting and fishing and, and, and living that lifestyle? So there was that part of it and the other part that Pasco really misses was the spiritual side of, of things and and how that's important in terms of them adopting new techniques. So I've just got it open here on page 71. So the Yir Yorant people of Cape York Peninsula, many still living in the bush in the 1930s, made no watercraft. So, and this example stands out as evidence for the role of spiritual traditions in the adoption of technology. Among the bush Yir Yorant, the only means of water transport is a light wooden log. Now these natives know that tribes 45 miles further north have a bark canoe and thus can fish from midstream. But for them the adoption of the canoe would not simply would not be simply a matter of learning a new number of behavioral skills for its manufacture and use. The adoption would require a much more difficult procedure. The acceptance by the entire society of a myth either locally developed or borrowed, to explain the presence of the canoe and thus establish it as an accepted totem. So so it wasn't just the case they'd say, oh, there's a canoe, that's a good idea, we'll make one. They had to have acceptance of a myth to explain the canoe. And the sort of spiritual side of, of how Indigenous people think, to me, really labelled Pasco as, as really a Westerner, coming in with Western ideas and with no Mm. knowledge of what Indigenous people think. And it seems from the book he didn't talk to any of them. He's just gathered information from explorers because part of his stick was that he looked at the accounts of white people and their diaries and because he said, well, that'll prove to people what I'm saying is true because they won't trust me if I get it from black people, if I... If I find these passages from white people, then people will have to believe it because it's there. That's part of his argument. But Mm. what these people, experts, are saying is, well, if you want to know about what Indigenous people were doing, you ask Indigenous people. You're just asking a bunch of white fellas on horseback who are travelling through what they thought they saw was not 
how you should interpret what people were up to. So they have had extensive dealings with lots of people in Indigenous cultures. Like, let me just give this guy's credentials, maybe. would be good. This guy, for example, Sutton, over the past 50 years, he's been Cape York Peninsula, Western Arnhem Land, Daly River, the Murrungee Track, Central Australia and the corner country of the Lake Eyre Basin. He's worked with people in urban and rural regions in three cases, Eastern Cape York, Western Cape York and North Central Northern Territory. I've been taken as a son by senior men and incorporated into their families. I've recorded on site several thousand places. I've recorded many Aboriginal language and learned to speak three by me. He's an expert witness when it comes to land rights claims like the guy has done some serious time in the bush with people yeah far more than pasco has and mm. so so there we go it's a really comprehensive slapdown of pasco but it's mm. actually at the same time a really good building up of indigenous people and and poo-pooing the idea that they were too dumb to invent the bow and arrow or other things it was more they just worked with what they had they had very complex spiritual, social things going on and they live lightly on the land and it made sense that that's what you would build, a simple lean-to wooden hut and because you're only staying for a few days, you're moving on. So it's very interesting and I highly recommend it. So I got an email from Paul who said, why are you always banging on about, this is a different Paul, not Paul the 12th man, but why are you always banging on about Dark Emu and and Bruce Pascoe, and I'll read a bit here. He says, thinking back to a previous esper, thinking back to a previous episode, but thinking of Telus, which was the purpose of things, the Aristotle purpose. I'd like to know what your purpose is in criticising Dark Emu, because I see holes in your arguments and the arguments of those that criticise it. But I also see that Dark Emu may embellish the truth and claim more than is warranted. So I want to know what you're seeking to establish there in relation to how we should see the Aboriginal people from the time of British settlement on. So, so my answer to that is, it's the same reason I'm bagging spectator articles all the time that misrepresent the truth. It's the same reason I'm bagging religious groups that misrepresent the truth. I'm just trying to... If we don't know the truth about things, then we can't properly examine the way forward on things. And it just seemed to me that this was so obvious a, a misrepresentation of, of what we knew. And it seemed a reluctance by people to criticise the book because it was seen as some criticism of Indigenous people if you were to criticise Dark Inu. And as these people explain in their, in their book, is really Pasco denigrated Indigenous people in his clumsy white man attempt to explain their world. Mm. He didn't do them justice at all. Mm. So Declan says, but truth isn't the same for everyone. Well, Declan, there is a truth about whether Indigenous people conducted agricultural activities or not. Like there is a factual truth to that. So, so it's important to understand that. It's important to understand what their decision-making was. So, and Declan, yes, Pasco is Indigenous, but he doesn't understand Indigenous people, according to 
what I just read. And that's clearly possible. You, just because you're a member of an identity group doesn't mean you're actually an expert on your own identity group. You could have an Australian in America talking about politics and saying, you know what, John Howard was one of the greatest prime ministers we've ever had. And somebody would say, well, he's Australian, he must know. Well, no, <laughs> not at all. A friend of mine, my next door neighbour, was in Chile and he said, oh, the people there are still going on about that terrible socialist government that was there. And I was like, well, which Chilean people did you actually speak to? Like you could have found a bunch of other Chilean people. This goes back, Declan, to what, all people think the same, do they? Like do people of Indigenous backgrounds all think the same? Do they no. not have disputes? So, so you know, read the book, Declan, Farmers or Hunter-Gatherers, and, and read Dark Emu and then make your own mind up as to where the truth lies. Well, I'm, I'm a European, which must make me an expert in uh, Russian farmers of 40,000 years ago. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, uh, it it doesn't necessarily follow. Yep. Just so so anyway, have a read, Declan, and see if it changes your mind. I've just sort of skimmed through what it's kind of saying, but and yeah, it's so why Paul do I bang out on about it? Because to me, it was an obvious distortion of the facts, and to me, there was a you know I consider myself on the left, obviously. And this is one of those issues where people on the left feel, well, I'm part of the left tribe, I must be a dark emu supporter. <laughs> well, well, no. <laughs> no. You can actually look at topics and pick and choose and make your own mind up. And But uh, even on the podcast yeah, of yeah. the interview of the personal persons, it's two people, isn't it? They work together to write that book you yes, have there? Yes, Yeah. Mostly one, but yes. Yep. Yeah. Mm. And they were saying like... When Dark Emu book, they started talking about the debate and they just said that there wasn't one. It actually wasn't a debate, Bruce Pascoe. Released his book, won an award, da-da-da-da. So it's not just a case of we weren't actually presented with anything contrary. I don't think it's yes. just a case of being on the left. We weren't actually presented really with anything mm. contrary to what it was. And I know that we might have been partly like sensitive to it. Mm. But like I was saying to you before the podcast, like since that book's been released, there's been a, a lot of noise. It's been, mm -hmm. you know, unavoidable from Media Watch to a whole range of things discussing it. So, mm. yeah, I have to concede on this one. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and, and Media Watch But I'm willing something. to be persuaded, which is, I think, a good thing. So, so it is interesting and certainly mm. it's a very readable criticism, but it's not just a criticism of dark emu, it, it paints in a really attractive picture Indigenous people's lifestyles, why they were that way and how it should be celebrated, not this fake celebration of this foe, of this made-up agricultural society that he was trying to really shoehorn Indigenous culture into a Western idea. Quite insulting, really. If, if you're pro-Indigenous people, you should be really angry with the dark emu book as a misrepresentation, you, sh you know, don't try and defend it. You should be angry with it. That's my view. So, mm. right. And sort of in the same email from uh, listener Paul, who he sort of said, you know, why do you bang on about dark emu? But at the same time, he was frustrated with Paul, the 12th man, for his lockdowns. And, and Paul was, Paul, the listener, was wanting me to try and tie down the 12th man as to 
what evidence would it take in order for Paul to concede that lockdowns work, for well, example? We, have we even defined, A, what a lockdown is, B, what does work mean? Uh, no, we haven't. We're getting nowhere there. <laughs> exactly. Because, because I think we could be talking completely different definitions. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then the next week it'll change as well. And so listener Paul was on the one hand saying, you really need to examine the 12th man about his views on lockdown and try and do this to try and get an answer out of him and find the truth and force him to see the truth. But at the same time, they're saying, well, why are you so concerned about dark emu and the truth? Paul, like really, can't you see that they're kind of the same issue, the same motivation that you have for getting frustrated with the 12th man is the same reason I get frustrated with dark emu to some extent. So there you go. So anyway, when it comes back to Telus and Aristotle, I think it's Paul's fate is to be a contrarian and it's my fate to provide hy- the- hypotheses <laughs> that he then argues with. And that's that's our purpose in life. Yeah. So okay, how are we going for time? Anybody in the chat room really keen to talk about something? If you are, just say something in the messages and we'll consider throwing open the throwing open the lines and having you sort of chime in if there's somebody out there who's really keen. So anyway, and what you'd like to talk about, just let us know. Look, if you've been listening to this podcast for six years, you're just ahead of the game on so many things. I thought like there was a big thing on Four Corners about Scott Morrison and QAnon, which was about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And we discussed Scott Morrison and QAnon in August 2020. So we're ahead of the game on that one. And there was also Australia Post and Christine Holgate and her objection to privatisation. And again, we're sort of like five or six weeks ahead of the Four Corners program on that one as well. So if you are um, listening to this podcast... Did you get your watch? Did I get my watch? Yeah. My gold watch? Yes. For six years service? (laughs) No, no, just for, you know. Right. No, I didn't. No. I've got lots of toys around here. I've got electronic stuff everywhere. What else have we got? Shay, did you see that strange thing about St. Luke's Anglican School? Only when you sent me the notes today. Really? You didn't see that one? No. So, actually, what are they saying in the... Julia Banks. Julia Banks. Julia Banks came out on Four Corners and basically accused Scott Morrison of being a real bully in her in his dealings with her and... I read um, her op-ed. Mm. And she said she would stay in the party as an independent to push the views that she felt close to her heart, such as women's climate issues change. and climate change. And I thought to myself, what are you doing in the Liberal Party? <laughs> She, she if the issue is close to your heart, she said she's you a think that? fiscal conservative, yes. but liberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. A... Well, well, this is the bunch you just spent billions on, yeah. as they should have. I, I know, but not but... for Jerry Harvey. Like, I just thought I've got. A... It's just a part of me when I hear stories like this, where, oh, I'll stay on with my really heartfelt issues of climate change mm. and women's issues. As a member of the Liberal Party? Come on. <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. It seems hopeless if you're in the Liberal Party. They've I saw there's some sort of party emerging as well, the new Liberals. Have mm. you seen them? 
So it's... They shouldn't be allowed that name. If, have they been allowed that name? <laughs> so, so they're socially progressive, they... but fiscally... Uh, Conservative. <laughs> economically, fiscal, whatever. So... Um, they have launched the private prosecution of... Christian Porter. Yeah. Private prosecution. Yeah. I've, anyway, their pro- website's quite impressive. I considered joining. Right. But, <laughs> so I thought the talent, talent but, pool's not that but, wide. But, but it was on Irritations and Pearls. <laughs> yeah. But for a start, the name New Liberals, they should mm-hmm. not be allowed that, I don't think. Mm. That's too close to just the Liberal Party, the New Liberals. That's easy to sort of confuse people. Should True. the Liberal Party be allowed to be called the Liberal Party? Mm. Well, it's misrepresentation. (laughs) (laughs) They're liberal with car parks for their own constituent. They're very liberal in handing them out. But what are they? Fiscally conservative but socially progressive. Uh, Allegedly, yes. And what's fiscally conservative mean? Oh, whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I I think less government spending. Yeah, that's great. How's that working out in a pandemic? We don't need governments, do we? So so government out of the bedroom and government out of the boardroom. So, sounds like a bunch of libertarians. Probably. Yeah. Oh, great. Mm, Just what we need. That's right. So, anyway. Yeah, because governments have never done anything good. (laughs) They haven't. New liberals. Oh, dear. Yes. So I think that's how it's going to have to keep going to more, more and more fractured party it's lines. kind of like the born-again Christians, to which the classic <laughs> response is, why be born again? Why not just grow up? Oh. Yeah. Bronwyn, I, I believe her too, mm, Bronwyn. I mm, do believe her. I just, oh, I believe mm, what, what she said was mm. happening. Roman says, I don't doubt the truth of what Julia Banks, Banks has said. However, I don't have much time for her. She used to be our local member and was terrible, hardly present in the electorate and didn't do much. Plus, her behaviour during the election campaign was appalling. I asked myself, what on earth did she expect as a woman in the Liberal Party? True that, Bronwyn. Yes. Okay. So, back to St Luke's. <laughs> yes. So, on the northern beaches... An Anglican school, and the boys were told to choose qualities they looked for in a girl from a list that allocated more points for virginity, looks, and strong Christian values than for generosity and adventurousness. And what's wrong with that? (laughs) And the year 10 male students at the co ed St. Luke's Grammar School were separated from the female students for the Christian studies exercise. In another classroom, girls were given articles to read about why remaining a virgin until marriage was important. And this caused an uproar. So it was some sort of Christian religious exercise. And it's a little bit like Julia Banks. I sort of say to myself, if you send your kids to St. Luke's Anglican School and they get a crazy religious nutter giving them some stupid ideas about emphasising virginity, well, what did you expect would happen? It's like joining the Liberal Party and finding that they're actually not as progressive as you thought they were. Like, what did you think was going to happen? So, uh, uh, I don't know about that. Like, right. we, I went to a Catholic school down the road mm. and when I was in grade nine, we had this, like, 15-year-old boy with this beautiful fro. He had this, like, curly, curly hair. At the time, our um, principal was a brother and he had he took exception to James's hair. Mm. And took him into the office and shaved his head. 
Yep. Yeah. So yep. anyway, his mum took him out of the school shortly after. Yes. It was an incident with fireworks as well, just to <laughs> set the record straight. Mm. But anyway, like, there's a level, right? You send your kid to a Catholic school to get a Catholic education, not to have his shaved head, his head shaved because it's like too something. Well, Do you, you know send, what I mean? You like, send your Catholic, you send your kid to a Catholic school for discipline. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my mother did. And did your principal shave your head? No. <laughs> Baptised you. That's right. No. <laughs> but, yeah, I just think You're a right. lot of people aren't sending their kids for Christian teaching. They're mm. sending them because they're elite schools and they'll get into fancy yes. universities. Yes. They, so all this stuff really does have to stop, They have a it? perception of that. <clears throat> I did an interview. Did you hear? Did you? Have you been right back to episode one? No. Of the podcast. Okay, I did an episode. I did a, a I did an episode with a guy Gillespie, which talked about choosing schools and the the pros and cons of private and public schools. Worth looking into. Might revisit that at some stage. So anyway, yeah, they were given tw- these boys were given twenty five points to allocate on qualities that you would look for in a girl. Uh, now, this is supposed to be for a lasting relationship. And listed below are the number of qualities, each marked with a point system. You have to prioritise what you think is important. So six points was popular, loyalty, good-looking slash attractive, intelligent, strong Christian, kind and considerate, virgin and trustworthy. At the five-point level, physically fit, easy to talk to, fun, sense of humour-wise. Down in the one-point Level, favourite hair colour, favourite eye colour, has more money. Sincere and serious, generous, adventurous, similar beliefs, cares for the world, comfortable even in quiet moments. I don't know why some of those things were rated on that sort of point system. So anyway, you were supposed to construct your ideal girl with only 25 points to play with. And, and yeah, the girls had one that actually, from memory, had reference to Satan in there that had to keep away from the devil. So how's she a great kisser and still a virgin? There's <laughs> <laughs> well, a great kisser in that list. Three, three points, great kisser, owns a car. Really? Yeah. <laughs> owns a car and a great kisser. What a ridiculous list. What's just, ridiculous. What a muck, mixed up jumble of non- What a... <laughs> So Crazy. have anyway. we identified the person giving the lesson? No. Uh, he got kicked Maybe out of the school, I think, and mm. got censured. And I was like, oh, can't believe that was happening. Sorry. <laughs> Please continue with your normal lessons. So, yeah. Okay, more craziness. We've got Joe Biden. He's got a position which is kind of liberal, kind of new liberal when it comes to <laughs> yes. abortion. And... It is any kind of liberal like Tony Blair was liberal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bedrooms, they don't care so much what goes on. They're mm. kind of liberal. Yeah. So Roman Catholic bishops in the US have voted to press ahead with moves that could result in Joe Biden being banned from receiving communion because of his stance on abortion and that risks increasing tensions in a divided church. So they passed one saying that because of his people who are in favour of abortion should lose the right to the benefits of Holy Communion. And How about they pass one that says that people who rape children should lose the benefits of Communion? 
That would be far too sensible. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because you've got to forgive. Joe. Oh, of course. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, it seems like it's up to each individual bishop as to whether they will enforce that or not. So, And his local bishop is pretty okay with it. So, um, I just immediately yeah. thought of the film Mean Girls right. when I was reading that. Have you seen the film Mean Girls? Uh, it's about a bunch of high school bitches and right. getting by. But anyway, there's a day where the most popular girl, she sits down at the table and the others are like, you can't sit with us. And that's immediately what I thought of when I was reading this. Just petty. Mm-hmm. There we go. So oh, in the chat room, um, Ricky says, Dad owns a brewery. Could be worth six points. <laughs> uh, and Green said, and his daughter has a key. <laughs> Very good, Ricky and Grant. Someone's yes. channeling their uh, Kevin Bloody Wilson. <laughs> That's good. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson, he got married recently. And people were asking how the twice-divorced Mr. Johnson got around the Catholic canon law, which did not permit the marriage of a divorcee if the former spouse was alive. He didn't get married in a Catholic church? Well, um, not the first. so yeah, the Roman Catholic Church said neither Mr. Johnson's first marriage, which lasted six years, nor his second marriage, which lasted 27 years, were Catholic ceremonies. As such, they weren't recognised by the Catholic Church and his marriage to Ms Simmons is his first in the eyes of the Catholic Church. So he's a fornicator. Okay. <laughs> we forgive. Oh, of course, yeah. Yes. Forgiveness is handy. I like that one, Grant. And his daughter has the key. Yeah. Now, Deliveroo, they've been found to have unfairly dismissed a meal delivery driver in a ruling that could trigger a massive wave of back pay claims. So... This whole gig economy thing is going to be very interesting how that pans out. So it was really saying that a Deliveroo driver was an employee rather than an independent contractor was the basis of the decision. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it was that it said the minimum wage for casual workers in Australia is $24.30 an hour. As independent contractors not covered by that, Deliveroo drivers apparently average between $20.47 and $23.40 as opposed to the minimum wage of 24.30. That's better than I thought they'd get. I'm mm. worried there was going to be a lot less, closer to the minimum wage than I thought they would be. But you got to remember, they're probably only doing three or four hours of work where they'd be actually earning that, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. Or is that well, hang on, oh, don't, don't, independent not Don't forget by. they've got, that doesn't cover the cost of the vehicles as far as I know. Okay. I think there's expenses have got to come out of that. Hmm, not sure on that. Not sure on that figure. That could Mm. mm, Not sure. Okay. Meanwhile, according to Wikipedia, various studies have shown that between 30 and 40% of all workers are engaged in gig economy jobs. And according to one study, they get 58% less than employees on average. So that to me makes more sense. I just would have thought people on gigs are more like half the wage rather than the full wage. So... Mm. Uh, we'll find out about that. Tokyo Olympics. Is anybody at all excited or care about the Tokyo Olympics? No. Dilly gaff. What's that mean? Do I look like a give a fuck? Oh, okay. <laughs> Obviously no. And really, I don't think the 
Japanese do either. Now, this is a bit of an older article, which was with 60 days to go, and I think it's closer, more like 30, because this has been in my little list of topics for a while here. But they've really got some major problems in Japan trying to knuckle down on their COVID outbreaks there. And the thought of having a bunch of athletes arriving and mingling around, it just sounds like a disaster for the poor I, Japanese. I did hear that they'd banned athletes having sex because they'd obviously catch COVID, right. but they've handed out 20 million condoms. Right, okay. <laughs> Just for, the, for them to take home with them. Right. <laughs> Souvenirs. <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> you know. Two today, wasn't there, in Japan? One the oh, other yeah, day. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'll leave the Spanish skin tone stamps until Paul comes back. He'll like that one. <laughs> China update in Paul's absence. This is a good one. This is some headlines from the New York Times. And first headline reads, The world needs masks. China makes them but has been hoarding them. So that was a headline in the New York Times. And a few months later, a glut of Chinese masks is driving down US companies out of business. Poor Chinese, I just can't win. The government is blaming the Chinese for the Great Barrier Reef disaster. So so they think that there's a conspiracy fueled by the Chinese to bring about this report that is alleging that our Great Barrier Reef is in danger. And because they happen to be, I think they're the chair of the organisation at the moment or something like that, Australia was basically blaming China for, for that. Do you know, dear listener, I read religiously the Courier Mail and the Australian every day and it astounds me the amount of anti-China articles that appear in the Australian every day. Like, but you, just... you know they're responsible for the climate change scam because they wanted us to be less competitive digging up coal uh, and be able to have their own coal market. I don't know, I heard some conspiracy about how it was a big ploy by China to right to shut down Australian coal mining. Right. They just get blamed for everything. And the mm. Australian, it's just relentless. Three, four, six, ten articles. Every time in that paper, there is just anti-China. There's just China bashing going on all the time. It just sets a tone. I'm, I'm sure Anastasia is Chinese. Mm. She must be as well, yes, because <laughs> they're giving her a bash as well, yeah. What else have I got here? I think... But since we blame China, hasn't yeah. it come out that that's discredited yeah, as well? Yeah, nothing yeah, to do it with matter. it. Yeah, it was just more smoke and mirrors from the uh, Morrison government. Yeah, let me just see what else. I am going to talk another day about critical race theory because I'm really struggling to get my head around exactly what it means. But it depends who you ask. yeah. So critical race theory will be something for another time. And, oh, you know, I think we're, I think we're nearly done on this. Does anybody want to ring in? If you do, give, can you give them a... I can, yeah, I'll yeah. paste it in the chat. Because for the bits that I want to get out this time, I will, I think I'll pause on, on those. Just let me give you some Noosa Temple of Satan update stuff. So had some assistance from some barristers who have provided some pro bono advice on submissions and things like that. So that's been helpful. The Originally, one of them was going to be able to actually act for me, but turns out his diary got full and he couldn't. So I'm on my own again. But that's all still heading for the 12th of August. We have a campaign at the Noosa Temple of Satan for some funding for 
our right to information application. So if you, it used to be called freedom of information. And I think they changed the name when they started charging people so much. So for our 700 odd documents, it's costing us two and a half thousand dollars. And, and we've already got our first little batch of about 30 documents have come through and a couple of interesting things in there. And I'm not allowed to tell you exactly what things have come in, but there's a couple of little bits there that you'll find interesting. Let's just say there's some good evidence of how hypocritical some so-called freedom of religion advocates are who, who in the media are all for freedom of religion but meanwhile are sending letters to the Minister for Education saying good on you for stopping those Satanists from getting into the, the schools. Hypocrisy? So, I don't believe it. Yeah, indeed. So so that's there. So if you can help, we're, I think we've raised about $1,500-odd towards a $2,500 target and it was really interesting when we did the post yesterday... I think it was, and and just the PayPal amounts that just came in, like within two and a half hours, 40 people had donated some sort of money, and that was really encouraging, actually, that people just sort of flooded in with that. So so hop on, hop on over to the noosatempleofsatan.org website, and you'll see a donation link, which is a PayPal thing, and lots of people donated $6.66. As an impressive amount that they thought was good. But then there was 10, 20, 100, even a $200 amount to that person. I say, thank you so much. You are very generous. We'll try not to let you down. So that was that. And we'll be meeting with Amanda Stoker 12th of, 12th of this month. Six days' time. Wow. Better get made into gear and think about what I'm going to say. <laughs> Oh, the scones made. Yeah, we'll make them fresh. (laughs) So Robin and I will be meeting with Amanda Stoker. Meanwhile, the Rationalist Society, the National Secular Lobby, Atheist Foundation, none of them can get a meeting. Pastafarians. Yep. So So it was because of the fact that we sort of hounded her really and said, well, you're meeting all these other faith groups, you better meet with us and enough people badgered her and, yeah. So, so anyway, that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to meeting her. So it'll be interesting. Yes. Hmm. So Looking forward to hearing about it. Yeah, so that'll be a good story. What else is there? I think next week then I'll go back to some sort of book review. I think I might do the Bernard Collery East Team whole thing because that's really fascinating, so I might squeeze that one in. And I did see something about Witness K. The other thing mm-hmm. was Julian Assange. Yes. The principal witness that was testifying that he had egged hackers on to hack the US military has now reneged on his or recanted his confession. Right. So the primary US witness that changes it from leaking secrets of a government that he's not responsible to to espionage has, has flipped. Has flipped. Yeah, right. Okay. Yep. Well, it's just completely outrageous what's happened to Julian Assange. There's another book review we can do on that one as well. So if you've uh, got any particular topics you want me to cover at some stage, let me know. But okay, it doesn't look like anyone's, anyone is compelled to join us, so that's okay. They're, they're keen yeah. with topics to yeah. talk about, but not to... Uh, what else have we got? Um, Criminal age of responsibility. Uh, I believe at the moment it is 17 rather than... In Queensland. 18. Yes, isn't it? Um, I thought it was like 10 yeah, I think 14. I think you're... Sorry. I think you're treated as an adult. Yeah. At 17. Yeah. 
and obviously you could be charged with an offence younger. Any particular reason why criminal age of responsibility would be a topic? I don't think any young people have been... Recently a young right. person hit and killed a couple. So, right. That's not that recent. Yeah. But that's yeah. brought it up. So, I mean, there's the juvenile courts, yeah, of course, with mostly teenagers who are... Yeah, Mel, any particular reason? Do you think it is too low or too high? I guess it all depends on the circumstances. But mm-hmm. I haven't got anything... I- did hear a friend in Perth said that somebody down the road from him, a octogenarian, 80-year-old, had come back from the shops and was assaulted by a bunch of 13, 14-year-olds right, uh, and was in hospital and was obviously fairly upset because mm. it was just down the road from him. But I think yeah, whether they were going to be criminally charged or whether they get a slap on the wrist and putting someone in hospital. Yeah. I don't know. I forgot to say, we've got a message from Scott. Let me just play that one for cool. you. Yep. Uh, sorry, Scott, for, for omitting it. Here we go. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, Shay. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. It's the Velvet Glove here. I'm just ringing up to say congratulations on six years. Who would have thought six and a bit years ago? I made that throwaway comment to Trevor about, you know, I think it's time that you wrap your iron fist in a velvet glove that such a comment would spawn the publishing empire that is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Okay, anyway, just a quick congratulations from me and um, I will be talking to you. See ya. Bye now. Good on you, Scott. Scott's up there in Mackay now. So it's about time he got some leave and came down to see us. It would mm. be about time, yeah. So he's going well up there and enjoying Mackay. So, all right, do this now. We'll wrap it up. Next week, it'll just be me but there might be a phone in not sure and hopefully paul's back in two weeks time we'll all be back in two weeks time and we will talk to you then but bye for now bye and it's a good night from him thanks for seeing me doc i started listening to the iron fist and velvet glove you know just once a week to take the edge off and now i can't stop i'm downloading and listening to back copies almost every day. I need your help, please. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and... When you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe 
you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.